everyone hello 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 and welcome to the dr tamara beckford show okay i'm super excited today we're going to be talking to the one and only dr jeff o'driscoll but i want to welcome you to this wonderful show today Alrighty, let me tell you you are here with the Dr. Tamara Beckford Show, where I get the honor, the privilege of highlighting all my super docs from all over the world who are doing wonderful, amazing things inside and outside of clinical medicine. Now, I know you're going to love this show today, and you're probably wondering, well, where can I find other episodes? Ah, have no fear. You can go to yourcarendots.com, select podcast. You'll see everyone's beautiful faces, right? You'll see even Dr. Jeff, Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll's face is going to be up there soon. You just click listen here and you'll have the wonderful episode. You can listen to it over and over again. Now, when you do that, do not forget to share all your wonderful episodes with your friends, at least three of them, right? And leave a great comment. Yes, leave a great comment so we know what you liked and what else you want to know and hear. Now, what's even important, if you are a doctor out there and you're doing wonderful, amazing things inside and outside of clinical medicine, and you said, you know what, I want to let others know about what I am doing, you can send me an email at drbeckford at yourcarendots.com to book on this show. Keep in mind, we have been booked out solid for 90 days in a row since November of 2021, just consistently. So if you have a wonderful book coming out, if you have a program coming out that you want others to know about, time it, send us books so that you can get it right on time and we can tell everyone about your wonderful program, right? Without further ado, I'm going to bring in one of my new friends, why? Because we are EM-centered, we understand, and we have worked in the ER department. Now, this wonderful doc is a graduate of the University of Utah College of Medicine. He is one of our founding doctors of emergency medicine. So you're wondering, what does that mean? Well, emergency medicine is one of our newer specialties. So surgery, internal medicine, and all those other specialties have been around a long time. Emergency medicine is one of the newer specialties. And this doctor here is one of those doctors that helped to train us to be the doctors that we are today. So he has also been the chairperson of a level one trauma center in Salt Lake City. That's how good he is. Not only that, now he's done all of this, been working as an ER doctor for over 25 years, but he's also now an author and a best-selling author of the book, Not Yet. Now that's a awesome. wonderful, wonder, I will get all into it. Like, you know, why did we call it Not Yet? So this wonderful best-selling book, it follows Dr. O'Driscoll's experiences of shared death, that he has used all of these experiences to help to heal others. It's also highlighted his greater than 20-year friendship with one of the patients. It wasn't his direct patients, but one of the patients that he has seen and shared this experience with. And you'll read all about it in the book. Now, this book is able to highlight all of that and help people to heal. And because of that, he's decided, you know what? Since I'm getting this ability to heal, he's now going to use that. And he's going to tell us all about how he does that. We have here this physician. We have a spiritual mentor. We have a speaker, author, artist, and a healer right here. The one and only Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll. Woo! Wow, 
wow, wow, wow. Dr. Driscoll, thank you so much for joining it. Oh, we have Dr. Nupi saying hello all the way from the UK. So we have people jumping in and saying hello, hello, hello to you. Thank you so much for stopping by, Dr. Driscoll. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Oh, this is going to be fantastic. I already know. Now, you and I did speak offline for, you know, we had this great conversation. I think we were talking for maybe like 30, 40 minutes. And then we said, you know what? We have to bring this on <laughs> into the show. Alrighty. So many inquiring minds want to know, you know, before we became this big, mighty Dr. O'Driscoll, you know, chairperson, author, we had Jeff who was there and decided, you know what? I want to be a doctor. So bring us back to that state and why you decide you wanted to be a doctor in the first place. My story is very uh, underwhelming on that decision. <laughs> I had never considered medicine until I was about a sophomore or junior in undergrad uh, oh. college. Mm -hmm. And I was walking across campus one day with a friend of mine whose father was a physician. He'd known mm -hmm. all his life he was going to be a doctor. <laughs> And I asked him, I said, what are you going to do when you grow up? And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to be a doctor. And I remember thinking, oh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll try that. And that was my decision <laughs> to be a doctor. Well, what shirt are you wearing to this party? Uh, I think I'm going to wear a red shirt. Okay, me too. What do you want to That's be kind of how it was, yeah. Graduate? Like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. Okay, you know what? I'll try that out too. I love it. <laughs> so now you're on this journey, you know, and you become a doctor. Now you became a doctor in internal medicine, right? And at that point we said internal medicine, emergency medicine was related infancy. So we did not have emergency medicine doctors. Now you had the choice of being an internal medicine doctor and working as an internal medicine doctor or going out and being in what we call the trenches of the ER. So what made you decide to go towards emergency medicine? Well, I had the blessing of a very flexible internal medicine residency, and I really liked critical care, and a lot of my fellow residents didn't like critical care. <laughs> so I would trade them my ward rotations for their, in, their intensive care rotations. So I did about six months of critical care, trauma care mm -hmm. and, and critical medicine. Uh, I did uh, emergency medicine rotations during my residency. I did pediatric emergency medicine rotations and a bunch of other things. And so I almost tailored my own residency to emergency medicine because I liked it so much. And when mm -hmm. I was concluding my residency, uh, the director of the emergency department at the time came to me and he said, we'd like you to join our staff because I'd done a bunch of rotations in the emergency department with them. Mm -hmm. He said, we'd like you to come work for us. Would that be OK? And I, I thought, well, OK, if you if you insist. So, <laughs> yeah, they gave me my dream job right out of residency and then for 25 years, I did that. And as you mentioned, for eight years, I was the department chair, the level one trauma center. So I was teaching residents and uh, uh, even fellows and stuff. And I was a fellow of the emergent of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had a very rich uh, practice and career that way. Love it, love it, love it. So much love for the training, you know, the critical care and the critical thinking. And I love it. Your colleagues were like, oh, please go ahead, 
take, I will go off on the ward where I can sit and think. And you're like, I want to be in there with the critical, critical care. So love it that you had all of this extensive training and now you're working in emergency medicine. Now you're here working and you've noticed some things, but you haven't really been expressing it to a lot of people. I know if, if, you know, your wonderful book, and which we'll talk more about, not yet. You've described that you have a colleague, one of the nurses there, that kind of understand, and you and her talk about it, that you are able to experience things that you haven't really expressed to others. Tell us more about that. Sometimes in the emergency department, I'd have these profound experiences that science couldn't explain. Mm -hmm. um, like sometimes I would literally see souls leave their bodies when they died and they'd communicate with me before they left. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, there was one other nurse who knew this about me because she had similar experiences and she intuitively somehow got me to talk about it one day. She told me some of her experiences and she got me to talk about it privately. And so she was the only other one that knew about my experiences this way. And one day I'm, I'm working one night and she comes and gets me. She grabs me by the arm and she says, you have to come to the trauma room. I said, why? And she goes, because she's there. I said, who's there? And she said, his wife, she's there. You have to come. Mm -hmm. And I knew what she was talking about because we, of course, had had uh, radio communication about an incoming trauma patient that had been involved in a motor vehicle accident. And he was badly injured. He was unconscious. Mm -hmm. And his wife was deceased at the scene, as was one of his two sons. And so I knew what she meant when she said his wife was there. And so I went with her down to the trauma room and this uh, patient, uh, was unconscious on the gurney, surrounded by a bunch of caregivers, including an emergency physician. I wasn't the only one on duty, so I wasn't his doctor. Right. I went into the trauma room, and while they were working on him, standing above him in the air was his deceased wife uh, in this brilliant, beautiful light, and she communicated with me and expressed her profound gratitude for the care her husband was receiving. Mm. Um, I didn't I'd had enough experiences by then that it, it didn't shock me. It mm -hmm. was it was profound and beautiful, but it wasn't new to me. Right. And we sent this patient off to the OR, and I never expected. But about a month later, this same nurse insisted on dragging me up to his hospital room to tell him about the experience we'd had because she saw his wife too. And as we started to share this experience with him a month later, after he'd had several surgeries and an amputation of his leg and things. When he heard about his wife in the trauma room with us, he started to weep and he felt validated and encouraged enough that he opened up and told us that while his body was still trapped in the vehicle at the scene, he'd left his body and raised, risen up above the scene of the accident and met mm -hmm. his wife in this brilliant light. And she said, you have to go back and raise our other son because one of their son, one of their other sons had uh, survived the accident. Right. And so he felt like he could share that with me because I'd shared my experience with him. And it's now 25 years and we're still good friends. Wow. This is just amazing. And I know a lot of people, we have people saying, wow, this is like a whole mind, body and soul health. She's like, I'm tingling from my toe. So if you think you're tingling, even though, um, you know, Dr. O'Driscoll had experienced this before, he knew, and, and you know, when you read, and you write so beautifully, let's <laughs> just put it like that. Thank I you. mean, like, I felt like I was there when you're writing about this experience. And ironically, 
this wife, her name is Tamara. And her name is spelled just like my name. So I'm reading this. And of course, you know, that this has a more like even profound effect as I'm reading this. And one of the things that you mentioned, like, you know, you could feel like when the nurse came to you and she had the urgent look on her face, said, you need to come to this room because the wife is here. And like you said, you knew what she meant. And one of the ways that you express that is that in the emergency room, you rarely see us run. You rarely, if we are running or if we see anyone running, we know that something bad's going on because we have this level of calmness that we have to not exude because we're not calm underneath, but we understand the different levels of intensity and when to rev it up and when to keep it calm, right? right. So when this nurse came to you and she grabbed your hand and she said, you need to come, you know that this was not something to take lightly. And when you went to that room, you the way you described her, you said that she was just right over your right shoulder with flowing blonde hair. And another thing that you've expressed is that she looked grateful and that, and you've mentioned this too, that the souls are usually have a grateful and a thankful, um, you know, demeanor to them. Can you explain that a little bit more to those of us who are, have not experienced this, but are wondering, or maybe those who are experiencing this and are now feeling validated, like, yes, this does happen. Um, I've had many of these type of experiences and invariably the newly departed soul that I've interacted with was profoundly grateful for the care, even though it seemed like I'd done so little or, or nothing for them. Mm -hmm. uh, they always seemed filled with this profound love and uh, this uh, happiness about where they've been and where they're going. It, it, they're, they don't have a regret of any kind. Wow. And it doesn't just, it's not just seeing, it's, 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 it's experiencing it. Mm -hmm. I remember walking over and looking down at this person's injured leg. And I remember checking the pulse in his foot and think, and it, I knew how long it had been since the accident. Mm -hmm. And I knew he was at risk for a popliteal artery injury based on the injury that he had. And I remember checking his pulse and thinking, oh, he's going to lose the leg. Mm -hmm. And as I looked down at him, I could still see Tamara standing in the air behind me because I could see in all directions at the same time. And, and it just reorders everything in your life when you have one of these kind of experiences. It's like you understand what's important and what's not important. And you have mm -hmm. this profound, sudden flow of knowledge about things. And, and like I said, they're always so grateful. I remember one time coming to work. And I was just logging onto the computer when I felt this presence over my shoulder. I'd been around and I'd had enough of these experiences by then. I knew who it was. It was mm -hmm. the person around the corner in the resuscitation bay that another doctor and a team was trying to resuscitate. Wow. And uh, she asked me for help. So I stopped what I was doing. I walked around the corner. I was in scrubs and a white coat. Nobody paid any attention to me. It wasn't uncommon for another doctor to walk into the room right. when you're resuscitating somebody. And I just nonchalantly walked over to the only empty spot on the gurney and rested my hand on her leg because I'd learned that touch is so important in these experiences. Right. And as I touched her, she uh, asked me if she could leave. And I thought, why are you asking me? Why would you mm -hmm. think I know the answer to that? But even as I thought that, 
-hmm. words came from some divine place. Mind you, this is all silent communication. She's intubated. She's being uh, ventilated and getting chest compressions. And the words that came to me were, were, I told her, if you think this is the right time to go and you feel that's the right thing for you to do, I think it's probably okay. Wow. And it was like she felt empowered at that point. And she mm -hmm. came out of her body and rose up above the gurney and filled me with light and glory and love and thanked me. And then she left. Wow. And as I, as I turned and walked out of the room, I heard the physician in charge pronounce her death in military time. And I thought, yeah, I know. I saw her leave. Right. Back out and logged onto the computer. And that's how my shift began that day. They're always grateful. You know that this is so powerful, especially when we think about now those who work in the critical care units, you know, emergency, the EMS, you know, all those first um, responders. And then we also think about the family. You know, a lot of times we are in despair because we are wondering how did that person leave? How were they feeling? You know, for the, I think everyone feels like, did I do enough? Am I, did I help enough? You know, if you're a family member, did I do enough for that family member? You know, you're sitting there, you're wondering. And then if you were the person or the physician or even the first responder at the scene working and trying to help that person, did I do enough? We all have those days. But to find out that there's a gratitude in the person when they're leaving. I think it'll bring you at ease that, yes, once you did your part, they are happy because you did do enough. And that brings about a level of comfort for those of us who are still here. That's yeah, just powerful. That that's my experience as well. They're, they're so grateful. And sometimes if we just pause and be aware for a moment, we can experience it. It's real easy uh, when you finish running a code. If the patient doesn't survive, people mm -hmm. kind of just doff their gowns and gloves and walk out of the room and call housekeeping to get ready for the next patient. And you don't think anything of it because you're accustomed to it so much. But even if if there's still people in the room or they're leaving the room, if, if you can just pause for 30 seconds at the head of the bed uh, and just recognize this was a human soul. This mm -hmm. is somebody who just passed into another realm and, and, they're, and, and you honor them in silence. Nobody even around you even has to know, but you're just conscious of it. And almost every time I've done that, just that simple moment of awareness opens some portal and I have some profound experience with the person that's leaving. Wow, that is fascinating. You know, before I usually, when I have a patient that's very sick and I know that I'm ready to intubate them. So, you know, you're ready to either, especially if they were talking, but in distress, talking, but you know that they're going down. I usually do say a silent prayer and I speak very clearly to them. I rub their head and I say, you know, Mr. or Miss such and such, um, you know, I'm going to have to give some medication to put you to sleep. And I try to be, and I've talked about this even as early as this week, intentional in, you know, a soft voice, calm, loving voice, because at times I have this deep 
feeling knowing that that's probably the last voice that they'll hear. But even I've never thought about once, like, you know, the code ends or thing to just even doing that at that moment in time. So that's something that I can see. When we talk about CME, well, how will you change your practice? <laughs> well, that's the way that I can see me changing my practice. Now let's talk about um, well, how a lot of this began. And you talk about this story also about your brother. Now let's share with that, um, you know, about your brother and that um, particular incident that occurred. Just a month before my... Uh, my older brother, who was 15, 15 and a half, mm -hmm. uh, was working on a ranch in the other end of the county, and he kept a tractor over, and he died in the accident. Mm -hmm. I'd been very close to my brother. Um, I believed every word he said until one day when I was 10 years old, and he tried to tell me about sex. And I said, <laughs> no way. <laughs> that does not exist. What are you talking about? So, so I was really close to my brother. And... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I started to have experiences not long after he died, and I didn't really think much about it. I didn't connect the experiences to his death until many years later when somebody asked me a direct question about when did these spiritual experiences start for you? What happened? And I started to think back about it. Um, and about 20 years after my brother died, he came to me one day. Mm -hmm. I experienced his presence. I saw him. I heard him. Um, it was a profound experience. And he said, you have to go talk with our mother because there's things she's never told you about my death. Oh. And you might imagine that got my attention. Absolutely. So I went and I sat down with my mother and we had a chat one beautiful sunny day, just the two of us. And she told me for the very first time that day, I always knew where you were in the house before Stan died because I could hear you singing. When your brother died, you stopped singing. And that was the first time I realized that his death, his departure, had had this deep psychic impact on me and had written on my soul and changed who I was. And thinking back now, um, I, I, I've kept a daily journal for over 40 years, and I was reading my journal a while back, mm -hmm. and, and, and I'd recorded this experience I'd had when I was 19 years old. I approached this woman that was a few years older than me that I respected. I thought she was a real a really spiritual person. And I'd grown up in a fairly uh, rigid Christian tradition. And so with the only vocabulary available to me at that moment in time, when I approached this woman, I asked her without giving her any context for my question at all, I said, does God ever speak to you in sentences? Mm -hmm. And she just looked at me with this really knowing look and she kind of pointed her finger at me and she said, don't ever doubt that. Wow. And that was all she said. And it's proven to be good advice because over the years and decades, actually, I'd get more profound messages. And sometimes I started to see the messenger that was delivering it. And mm -hmm. I'd have these broader, more comprehensive experiences. So by the time I got to the emergency department, those experiences were not new to me. They were much more frequent in the ER because there were so many souls stepping through the veil Yes. Uh, that I had more experiences, but they weren't new. They'd come on gradually over all these years to the point that they felt comfortable and natural and normal to me. Wow. That's profound. So you'd accepted this. So now it's just a natural part of you. So it's no longer frightening. But it's I never no spoke with my colleagues about it. I never talked about not. it. <laughs> 
for 25 years, I never, I never divulged it to anybody in the emergency department except that one nurse who pried it out of me with a crowbar. <laughs> How did she do that? Because you, I'm pretty sure you're a very guarded person. I am very guarded, but she caught me in a tender moment and uh, she engendered trust by sharing some of her own experiences. She shared visions with me that made me weep when she mm. told them to me. And I knew, I knew she was a safe place. And so I, I shared a little bit and then she pried more and I shared a little bit more. And, and uh, then we had that profound experience together. She saw Tamara that day too. Mm. Wow. Wow. You know, now there are a lot of people who, when they hear these stories, some people are skeptical, you know, what do you say to those people? You know, because they're just like, well, I don't know if that's truly believes or it might make them start questioning their spirituality. What is something that you'd say to someone like that? Well, I never worry about skeptics. I don't ever try to convince them because mm -hmm. I'm just sharing my experience. If you like it and you accept it, that's fine. If you don't like it and you reject it, that's fine too. I have no uh, skin in the game of trying to convince somebody. Mm -hmm. But now that, you know, if, about six months after I stopped practicing medicine, something clicked in my soul and I woke up one day and I understood it was okay to talk about it now. And so that's when I started to share. And six months later, I'd published my book. Uh, and now I, you know, do international speaking uh, about this. And I have clients in 10 countries around the world. Help them get more connected, more aligned with their higher self, more connected to source, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I um, almost always when I talk to my clients as we visit, they'll verbalize the answer to the question that they came to me with. <laughs> and, I, and I simply reflect their words back to them and they have an aha moment and they go, oh, that's what that was. And I could give you a bunch of examples. But oh, please do. <laughs> well, for, for example, um, I met with a married couple once. I usually meet with individuals, but this couple came together and it had been five years since their son had passed from a, a drug overdose. Mm. And they had felt they had no comfort, no closure, uh, and they were distraught. Mm. And, and I usually meet with my clients, at least the first visit over a meal uh, in a restaurant somewhere. So we were about an hour into this conversation and suddenly this father looks at me and he says, you know, my wife and I went to this worship service once, and after it was over, we were just sitting quietly, and he said, I don't know what it was. It was like a dream, except I was wide awake. My son came to me, and we were in this elaborate, beautiful train station, and he took me over to the ticket counter, and he bought a ticket, and he looked at me, and he said, now I can go places I couldn't go before. And then this father just started talking about something altogether differently different. And I said, well, 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 wait a minute. I said, if a total stranger came and told you that experience, what would you call it? And he thought for a few minutes and he hesitated and very tentatively said, uh, a vision. And so I picked up the metaphorical mirror off the table and I pointed it back at him. I said, so let me get this straight. Your son came to you in a vision and he told you he was okay. And now he can go places he couldn't go before. And this father just started to weep because he realized, oh, that was real. That was my wow. son. And it just changed everything for him. It was a frame shift. So 
it's amazing how often I sit with a skeptic and they'll start to share one of their experiences and I'll just reframe it with slightly different words. And then they have this aha moment. People ask me, how do you work? And I say, I bring people to their aha moment. Absolutely. You know, one of the other um, things that we talked about was you acknowledging and asking for permission to be considered a healer. Let's uh, because that's really part of this whole aha moment section. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I was very reluctant about this whole shift in my career. It was something that uh, was new and different to me because when I'd have these conversations with people, sometimes I'd get this profound intuitive insight into what to say to them and I'd be reluctant to say it. But when mm -hmm. I said it, they'd go, ah. Yes, that's exactly right. And sometimes even I would have a deceased loved one of the person I was talking with that would identify themselves and tell me what to say. And I was really reluctant. Right. And this friend of mine I was talking to one day, he goes, I think you're a healer. I said, oh, no, no. <laughs> In the emergency department, I didn't think of myself as a healer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, I, I don't think so. I grew up in a very... Christian tradition. I said, there's only one healer. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, I disagree. I think you're a healer and I think you should ask for permission to use the word. So I thought that was interesting. I came home, I changed my clothes. I went out for a run because I get a lot of good communication sometimes when I'm running. And as I'm out for a run, uh, I asked the question, I said, is it okay to call myself a healer? And this divine presence came to me. And on this occasion, it was a male presence and he chuckled and he said, of course, I made you a healer. Wow. And with those few words, I got this download and I understood, oh, he's not diminished by my successes. If I'm a really good healer, it doesn't make him less. Right. And I, felt this, I felt this great empowering feeling of who I was. And I came home that day and that was the first time I put healer on my business card and my website. Wow. How powerful. You know, the recognition that you said, oh, wow, new beans and tears. <laughs> she said, this is just so powerful that the divine, you know, for me, you know, I'm a Christian. So I think of this like, you know, the Lord is not diminished by you taking on and saying that I'm a healer. It's like, no, I have made you a healer. I have given you this ability to help others. Why would I feel diminished because you're doing what I've asked you to do? It's just very, very, very profound. All right. And for the so, Christian audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so for the Christian people in your audience, it's, it's noteworthy that Christ identified himself as the light of the world. And shortly mm -hmm. after that, on the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to everyone who was listening to him, said, he said, you are the light of the world. And don't hide it. Put it on a mountain where everybody can see it. Don't use this false humility to make yourself less than you are. Step into the fullness of what you are and who you are and let it be. And if you think about it, when we said, oh, no, I'm not a healer. What was that? What are we doing when we're out there? When you're given a, a, a letter of support, you know, you're lending support to others. You're lending listening ear. You're giving advice. You're reframing someone's um, thoughts. We're all healing in those respects. So you're right. We are the light and we are shedding our light on others. So, you know, do not diminish yourself, as you mentioned, and don't feel that you've diminished um, the higher power because 
you do not call yourself a healer. This is just super powerful. All right. So now, you know, you are a spiritual mentor. People are wondering, really? Whoa, I wonder what's that? So give us an insight as what a spiritual mentor does. What I do as an intuitive or spiritual mentor is I help people to learn to trust the divine nature of themselves, mm. that they are connected with source, with heaven, with God, whatever word that you or your culture uh, chooses to embrace to represent that, uh, that's you. That's who you are. And so a lot of times, one of the things I help people realize, I tell them, if, you, if you're struggling to know the source of the voice you're listening to, mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you struggle through that and you conclude that it's your own voice you're listening to, it's still divine. Listen to it. Follow it. Because you're divine. That's where you came from. You're from a divine origin with a divine destiny. And I help people start to trust their intuitive experiences and act on them. And as they start to trust the small experiences, you know, when you get a feeling, oh, I should send so-and-so a card. Yes. I, should, I should send a text and reach out and just tell them I'm thinking about them. As you start to act on those feelings, you start to realize, oh, that wasn't just a passing random thought. Mm. that had meaning to it and if I act on it the next day I get a little bit stronger feeling and next week I get a little bit a little bit more and and you gradually walk into that until you're living a more intuitive intentioned uh, mindful life wow you're right the small things add up to the bigger moments you know and when you start to trust yourself on the small things when you get to the bigger decisions You've already built that power, that muscle in such respect, and that making the bigger decisions, you trust that too. You trust what you're feeling. Someone says, trust your intuitive feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now, you know. I like, I like that you used the word muscle mm -hmm. because that's the, that's the analogy I frequently use when I'm teaching this to clients. People are very comfortable with the idea that you can have a, a, a natural gift of music or yes. an athletic gift, but you still have to practice 40,000 hours to be proficient. Correct. But they tend to think of spiritual things as coming upon us whole cloth, perfected, ready to be exercised without an effort on their part. And I say, no, you have to practice. You have to do it every day. You have to work into it until it becomes part of you. So for those who have, that you have worked with and that's become part of them, what are some of the things that they have said to you? What are they saying? Like, oh my God, Jeff, like, whoa. <laughs> so give us an idea. Well, I, I get so many messages, emails, text messages, because I, I work close with all my clients. I give them my cell number. I say, call me anytime, send me a message, mm -hmm. whatever. So I get a lot of feedback. And I, I had one woman who, I remember we were doing Native American ceremony in a teepee mm -hmm. and uh, passing a pipe and and embracing the traditions of the First Nations people here in, mm -hmm. in the U.S. And she started to say some things about herself and she got really uh, resistant, really reluctant. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said, wait a minute, I want do this with me. 
repeat, and I gave her some affirmations to repeat after. Uh, and I said some things like, you know, I hear messages, I see angels, I, you know, you could list a whole bunch of them. And and we got to the one uh, affirmation I remember, and she just stopped. She couldn't make herself say it. It seemed too much, too big. And I encouraged her a little bit, and then she finally said it. And you could just see this uh, rush of energy or spirit go through her at the moment. A few days later, I got this text message from her. She goes, you can't imagine how my life has changed since I said that out loud. And wow. she was just owning her spiritual gift. Wow. So there's so many of us who we probably all have it, but we suppress it. We ignore it. We don't know what to do with it. And you said, just own it and do it little by little. Like these are, like we were saying, our intuitive feeling. Let's try to trust it. Trust what you're hearing, you know, trust what you're feeling. Open up to it little by little and you'll build that intuitive muscle and you can use that to really bring a lot of peace to your life. Because I'm pretty sure a lot of this brings an, a level of calmness that is so, that's been sought after for many well, think, think about it in the context or the pattern of your medical training. Mm -hmm. What if you went to four years of intuitive school and learned how to listen, how to act, how to honor your, your nature, your gifts, how to step into it, and then, and then you went to a three to five year residency in how to trust your intuition, how to uh, aid others, how to be that uh, soul that people need sometimes and step up and honor it. And then you went and did a fellowship. I mean, look at what you did to learn how to be a physician, how to honor uh, the feelings and the directions you get as a physician. If, if we did that kind of training for our intuitive uh, side, we would be equally uh, uh, proficient in that. Absolutely. That's a great, now talking about a great analogy, that's a great analogy because what we've done is here and there, we have used, as you've mentioned, you get the feeling, you get that intuitive feeling, you listen to it here and there, but a lot of times you ignore it. And it's the same. If you do not allow yourself to continuously get that repetition, then you will not be able to build onto it. And then also recognize that it does take a while. So as you, yeah, like we said, own it, practice, like Nupi say, own it, practice, trust, you yeah. know, shine who you truly are. She's like, that's why she has the phys essence. That's what she's doing there in the UK, having people own themselves and own what she herself feels. And, you know, she's, she's helping those do, those do it there in the UK. Go ahead, Dr. Jessica. And one of the things that's important about your medical training is you find mentors, you find people you trust, whether they're fellow residents or attending physicians. Uh, you find people that you can go to when you're stuck and you need help. Mm -hmm. And so much of our mental, our spiritual, our intuitive development is finding mentors that we can trust. It's about finding your tribe and, mm -hmm. and honoring that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also about recognizing miracles that we sometimes don't recognize. For example, I was with a group doing a Reiki training once, mm -hmm. and uh, they were talking about if they could have any spiritual gift, what would it be? 
And one of uh, the students who had been studying the Bible quite a bit had said, I want to be able to raise the dead. And I remember as he said it thinking, wow, that would be a powerful gift. I'd like to have that. And as I thought this, a vision opened up to my mind. And I saw myself in scrubs in a white coat in the ER with the fibrillator paddles in my hands, restoring somebody's heartbeat. And I saw myself doing it over and over again in different scrubs in different rooms with different patients over my 25 year career. And when the vision closed, I looked at my friend and said, I've been raising the dead for years. I just wow. called something else. Okay. <laughs> it's the words we use. They can sometimes yes. Or they, you know, 50 years ago, people weren't raised from the dead with defibrillation like that. That's very It was true. a miracle. And now it's common enough that we think it's not a miracle anymore. And the miracle has become the mundane. Yes. And the spiritual has become the science. We get that it's still a miracle, even if we understand it. That is absolutely true. You know, you have really just opened my mind when you mentioned there are a lot of things that we're doing, and because we do it and we repeatedly do it, we no longer look at it for what it is, which it is a miracle. Yep. You know, for especially for what you're doing in science and yeah, to be able to resuscitate someone, because we've all had that experience with someone who it just, you know, does not appear that that person is going to make it. And they do. And then we've had the story, you know, with thank God for defibrillators, people who are out in the field and, you know, they're using an external defibrillator and shocking, helping them. And then you hear like two days later, you know, they're leaving the hospital. And I'm a student of history, and I study mm -hmm. a lot of history. And I read one account about a man that drowned uh, in the in the Lahaina Harbor in Hawaii in the 1850s. His boat capsized. They pulled his lifeless body out of the water, and a person that was standing nearby had this spiritual experience where a voice told him, "Put your mouth on his and blow air into his lungs." Mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation had been described in some major academic centers in Europe at that time. Mm -hmm. But for this person on the beach in Hawaii, it was a totally spiritual experience. It was totally intuitive. Now it happens all the time, and we neglect to, to recognize how deeply spiritual it can be just because it's mundane and we understand it. And it, it's a pitfall we can fall into as people of science. Absolutely. And that's one of the challenges, too, because people, as we mentioned, People of science, at times we think, well, if I can't see it, I don't believe it. And one of the things that I really have within myself, have to really sit and think is about something that I read when you're talking about, like even with faith and understanding. They said the wind blows, you feel it on your skin, but you do not see it. I mean, you might see effects of it, but yet still we recognize and acknowledge the wind. So there are things that, as we mentioned, you know, we have to be a little bit more open when it comes to that and recognize the intuitiveness of it. You know, you're having such a, a lot of our, our colleagues are really jumping on and they're saying like, wow, you know, we have Dr. Mazarek who's saying this is such a great discussion. Thank you so much, Dr. Mazarek, for joining in. Um, we also have um, Dr. Cannon 
There's a great point about having to um, practice to apply our spiritual gifts in the same way we do our physical realm. Thank you so much there. And we have Dr. Londonio, um, one of my very, very close good colleagues there from California, um, our urologist, said, yes, my spiritual coach is literally an angel on earth. So glad, thankful for Dr. Disha Phillip. Thank you so much. And um, we also Dr. have Dr. Nupi that she says, yes, I'm finding my tribe. And she's so ready for that. You know, she, and as you mentioned, finding like-minded people, finding um, those who are really honing in on their skills and helping you to do so. And then finding spiritual mentors. There is someone who can reframe that. It, it's such a powerful, powerful way. And it brings a lot of peace and calm, especially as you're on your journey to whatever it is that you particularly have for yourself, your goal that you have for yourself and the goal that life has for you. So Can one, I add one thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the reasons I love studying First Nation traditions and mm -hmm. Reiki and Christianity. I, I've read the Bhagavad Gita of the Hindus. I studied the Quran. I learned Hebrew to study the Torah. And one of the values in studying all these diff different faith traditions is you gain new vocabulary. Mm. You go along, you realize, oh, we're talking about the same thing. We're just using different words. We're really not against each other. We're much more alike than we are different. And that vocabulary is so important. And, and the medical vocabulary gives us a whole new circle of people we can talk to that we can understand one another. Absolutely. You're right. That's one of those, the medical vocabulary ends up being a universal language for us to communicate with each other, no matter where we are. Once we say such a particular, once we say dyspnea, no matter where you are, you understand if you're in the medical field, we understand what dyspnea is, you know, you're right. And I, I love that beautiful metaphor. Like, you know, learning all these additional language words are just so powerful and being able to put a descriptor to the word when you're learning it from the different cultures and traditions. And then you recognize that word means the same thing through the different traditions. And also the fact that you mentioned, um, I love the powerful story that you just gave us about learning resuscitation, right? And CPR being done in one part of the world through this historical, um, I guess the historical um, research that you've been do doing, you know, you're, like you said, you are a lover of history. And then recognizing that in another part of the world, uh, just a very intuitive um, being that came to this person and told them to do the same thing that is on a completely other end of the world. And now both worlds are doing the same thing, right? But we have that person getting resuscitated in life, not because the person who started a resuscitation read the book or read the study from a colleague from many um, parts of the world, right? From Europe to Hawaii. It's that intuitiveness that's going there to that person in Hawaii to say, start mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, which is still done in its various forms right now to help to save lives. This is just beautiful. This has been like a mind blowing. And I'm seeing that a lot of people are really enjoying our conversation, but we're almost coming to the end. And I need to know what Dr. O'Driscoll is doing for self-care. I mean, this is just so powerful. What are you doing for self-care? Well, I try to 
have a daily practice. Sometimes I'm better at it than others, but uh, I, 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 I try to get quiet and listen. Silence is dramatically underrated in our world today. Now, silence is where we find so many of our answers. So I try to get quiet. I try to meditate and ponder. And sometimes I pray. And, and, and you know, we have to not get too confined in how we think about these things. Because sometimes my meditation is to music. And sometimes it's a guided meditation. That doesn't mean it's not meditation, although the purists would perhaps take issue with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes my meditation is a moving meditation. I get a lot of good connecting when I'm running or riding my bicycle. Mm -hmm. um, so what I tell people is find out what works for you and do that. And for me, it's about getting quiet, uh, having some meditation, possibly some prayer and honoring the messages I receive. It's so important not just to receive, but then to act on what you receive if you want more in the future. Wow, wow, acting on it. That's another part. I think that's a part two of our, our interview. We're gonna have to definitely do a part two, the acting on the messages that you're receiving. So now we are about to do one of our other fun question of the day, Dr. O'Driscoll. All righty, are you ready? Ready. All right, there we go. So if you weren't a doctor, what would you be? I'd be uh, a cattle rancher in the uh, mid-19th century Western U.S. frontier. Uh, uh, I, almost went to, I almost went to law school. I actually took the LSAT and got accepted to a couple of law schools, and I almost went to law school after I finished my medical training, but I decided, well, maybe I should actually have an income and take care of my family instead, because I was married <laughs> to my kids by then. I've always thought I would enjoy the practice of law. And, Why don't uh, become a rancher? Why can't we do that? And, 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 and I really... I think I'd enjoy being a novelist as well. I'm just finishing up a, a new novel that'll be out probably in a few months. Okay. And, well, do you uh, have a working title or do we have a full title yet? Uh, the working title is Finding Solace, S-O-L-A-S. Solace is the name of the main character. Ah. And he's an emergency physician. And he's academically oriented, struggling to explain the experiences he has in the ER that science can't, uh, can't explain. So... It was easy to write because I didn't have to do any research at all. <laughs> Just went within. So you went within. I love and, it. And the thing I love about fiction, writing fiction, as you know, I also paint and I sculpt. Mm -hmm. And and the art and including writing fiction is so liberating. It's such a stark contrast to emergency medicine because I can take my time. I can take as long as I want. If I don't get it right the first time, I can do it over again. And if I don't like the way it is, I can redo it. I have the opinion about what I'm sculpting. It's such a contrast. It's so therapeutic compared to emergency medicine. <laughs> it definitely is therapeutic. It gets to release all of the tension or the rigidness that occurs in the emergency medicine. And, you know, your thought process, everything, it's really important. Um, it's life-changing. You know, your decisions can alter someone's life. But with sculpting, you get to really just release. And like you said, with writing, you get to really tap into that part 
um, that of your imagination and just let it go wild, let it go free. I love, 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 love this. All righty. So now we just mentioned, like you said, that you have this wonderful book that's coming out. Working title is Finding Solace, but you have so many other great things that are available. And I know people who are listening, we've had a lot of people really loving, loving this conversation. They're probably trying to figure out where can I find this doc? I need to find out about him and I want to know more. So please let us know where can we find you? Uh, the best, probably easiest place to find me is helpingsoulsheal.com. Uh, you can also get there with my name, jeffodriscoll.com, but you don't have to remember how to spell my name if you go with helping. <laughs> and uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, Instagram. Uh, but the, the, the website's probably the easiest. And you'll see my other books on my website. And uh, mm -hmm. you can reach out to me, contact me there if you like. Uh, I love mentoring uh, physicians who are looking to align their intuitive gifts with uh, their scientific practice. I have I have physician clients in Australia and Ireland and uh, England, uh, a couple other places and U.S. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. So like I said, the wonderful Dr. Dress, Jeff O'Driscoll here, we have the physician, the spiritual mentor, speaker, authors, and of course, healer. He asked for permission and they chuckled at him, right? The Lord chuckled at him and said, of course, this is what you do. So absolutely go out and spread the light and continue healing. Thank you so, so much for stopping by the Dr. Mara Bedford Show. This was a wonderful episode. I had a fantastic time. And like I said, we probably will have to have you back for part two, right? Acting on it. Now we just talked about receiving. Receiving is part one acting on it is part two. So thank you so much. So for those of you guys who are watching, listening, will be listening and watching later, I thank you so much. Please do not hesitate to leave a comment on what you thought about this wonderful episode, right? So don't forget to also look and you'll see Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll's wonderful face on our website. Yes, if you're trying to figure out where can I find this? Just go to yourcaringdocs.com, select podcast, look for his wonderful face, hit that play, and you'll be able to hear this wonderful message over and over again, this wonderful episode. And if you are an Apple user, do not hesitate to go ahead and leave a comment. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Share it with somebody else. Yes, share, share, share. And if you are a doctor out there and you're like, wow, I also have this wonderful book. I also have this wonderful thing that I'm doing inside and outside of clinical medicine, and I want others to know about it. Send me an email at drbeckford at yourcarendocs.com to book an episode to be on the show. Do not forget, we are always booked 90 days out. So time it if you have that wonderful program that you want, if you have that wonderful book that you want to drop, time it so that we can get you there right on time to tell everyone about all that you're doing. Thank you so, so much for stopping by, Dr. Odriscoll. This was wonderfully enlightening. I definitely will be working on my intuitiveness. Yes, accepting and working on it and recognizing that I am in the internship phase of this and I'll work on it so I can get to the fellowship phase, right? Where I can just accept and know what's going on and recognize and be with one with my intuition. I hope you guys all do the same. So before we head on out, Dr. Jessica, 
any last words for our people who are here watching? Yes. Do I have a couple minutes? Absolutely. Um, in the ER one day, I walked into a room to take care of a patient. Uh, it was cold and wet outside. It was the edge of winter. And uh, he, there was just the two of us in this room. He had cold, wet feet because he had holes in his shoes and he'd been walking in the snow. Hair, uh, beard. Uh, he had a, a substance use issue and he was homeless. And uh, we didn't even talk much. We both know what needed to be done. I, I grabbed a basin of warm water, put some soap in it and grabbed a wash rag and I sat down at the foot of the gurney and I took off his shoes and I took off the threads of his socks and I washed his feet. And something profound happened. Everything that was physical and temporal and mortal about him was drawn aside and I saw his soul. And I understood at that moment that I was in the presence of the divine. Wow. He was the antithesis of everything that the world defines as success. Mm. And yet he was divine. And I realized at that instant that that's, that's who we all are. Mm -hmm. No matter whether we're sitting in church or in the gutter, the person next to us is always the divine. And it changed the way I viewed the world from that moment forward. Um, we're all here to help one another. We're all here to serve one another and to help each other home. Wow. How, what a powerful way to end this, right? We are all here to help one another, to serve one another, and to help each other home. A powerful there's the divine in all of us yes thank you so much dr driscoll this is a wonderful way to end this very powerful episode like i said you guys we definitely will need a part two let me know if you guys think we need a part two to this absolutely let me know we'll definitely try to get dr driscoll back on thank you so much thank you so so much for taking that time out and honoring us with this wonderful beautiful words. So don't forget to go out and get the first book that's out right now. Not yet. Right. And then we have a second book that will be out soon. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Driscoll. Thank you guys all for watching. I'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye-bye.